Father, we just thank you for this morning. We just lift this time up to you to look at your word. We would just pray that you open our hearts and minds that we would hear what you would have us to hear. But more importantly, that we would learn from it and that we would take and we would share with others. Father, our goal is just to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we would pray that you work through us to do that. And we thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, the last time I spoke, we were in Matthew 16, and I didn't get to finish. So I'm going to finish chapter 16 today. I always remember, I don't know, does anybody here know who Dr. E.V. Hill was? He was a pastor up in uh, southeast L.A. It was Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. The first time I heard him speak was at Summer Bible Conference at what was then Scott Memorial Baptist Church. And he gets up and he talks and he says, I have 10 points this evening for you that I want to cover in the scripture that I'm going to be talking about. Well, through the evening, he only covered five points. He came back next year, stepped in the pulpit and said, number six. (laughs) So he picked up where he left off and that's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to recap a little because it's been a while since, since I spoke. So... I want to recap a little bit, just the first part that we went over to kind of get us back into where we were. Uh, We looked at the first part, and it's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign. And Jesus had already showed them several signs. He showed them healings. He, He cast out demons. He turned water into wine. So there's a lot that that he had already done, and they just failed to see it. They basically were spiritually blind. Here they had been studying scripture most of their life as a Sadducee or as a Pharisee. And they just failed to see. And so they were just spiritually blind. They didn't see the true light. And in John 1, 9, 11, it tells us the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. And I think we see that some today. We see the direction that our culture is going and everything that's going on. And if you try to share Christ today, um, a lot of times you're ridiculed, you're put down. You know, it's just, oh, you're believing in a genie in a bottle. uh, Those things that go on. But it does happen. And that's, you know, while they thought they were doing God's work, they really weren't. They were focusing more on themselves, the power they had, the prestige they had. And so they were not truly sharing what God wanted them to share. We, um, so they were always asking, they were asking Jesus for a sign. And what they were looking for was a miraculous sign, a sign that could only come from heaven. And Jesus wasn't going to give them that. Um, he even told them, he says, here... You can, look at, you can look at what's going on with, with the, the red sky or whatever it may be. Uh, see how this went. It says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? If any religious leaders should have been able to interpret what was going on, it should have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they couldn't. Here they could predict the weather based on what they saw, 
But here, standing right in front of them, was the Messiah, and they didn't recognize it. It kind of related that back to today. And I had a friend that actually shared this with me. He calls it churchianity. And I think it's something we should always be on guard against when we're in church. You know, we raise, you know, we have our kids that come to church. We raise them in church. They reread scripture to them. We sing songs. We do all these things. And they end up with churchianity and not Christianity. And I think we need to be on guard of that. We need to make sure that our kids and those around us really understand what we're teaching and what we're saying. And that's, that's what he called it. He, he was raised in a home. His dad was a pastor, one of the largest churches in, in Birmingham. And he kind of went off the rails because he had churchianity and didn't have Christianity. But today, you know, he's put his faith in Jesus Christ and him and his brother, they're identical twins. They're about five foot four. Yeah. Identical twins. They do high school assemblies. And their, their ministry basically is to spend the week in high schools in a particular area. They have churches and Christian businessmen that sponsor them. And so during the week, they can talk to the kids. They can use their humor. They can use their music. And then on Fridays, they have a pizza blast in a neutral location choosing in a gymnasium or something like that. And that is where then they can share the gospel and reach. But they need the churches involved so they can plug the kids back into the churches so that they can be discipled. So let's always be on guard about that. Let's make sure our kids have Christianity and not churchianity. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were scriptural giants, but they were not spiritual giants. They, it was all about me. It was all about me. It was like, look at me, I'm well dressed, I, you know, I just, you know, I tithe, I do the things I'm supposed to do, but they didn't really recognize who Jesus was. And Jesus, he had been ministering by this time about two and a half years. So then at this point, when we get into Matthew 16, verses 5 through 7, it says, when they, crossed across, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take the bread. Be careful, Jesus said. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, is it because we didn't bring any bread? So here they're focusing on themselves. And I think about this time, I even ask you guys, are you thinking about what we're talking about this morning? Are you thinking about the donuts and coffee that are out there? Because sometimes we put our, our carnal needs ahead of our spiritual needs. But basically what Jesus was talking about was be on guard against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what they were teaching. And uh, yeast or leaven was, you know, always pretty much looked at as, as evil or could you know, infiltrate everything. I mean, we talked about um, Amish bread or friendship bread, that you always have to have a starter to keep it going. And so when you take that starter, or even today when you take yeast, what does yeast do when you make bread? I mean, if you let it go, it just, it just permeates. And so uh, we need to be on guard against that. And that's what Jesus was talking about. In verse 8, 
says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and the many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking about bread? So really, if Jesus wanted to, he could have fed them. He's more about worried about feeding them and getting them to understand truly who he is rather than their, their physical needs. Then we went on and looked at uh, verses 11 and 13. How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And there he states it. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast and the bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees. And we talked a little bit about, you know, today, to me, it's pretty easy to identify a cult. But it's harder to identify false teachers within the church. And that's what we really need to be guarding against. And that's what Jesus basically was telling them. We looked at, uh, basically, if you look in Second Peter, it'll help identify that. But um, I quickly read an article to you from Colin Smith. And what you want to do is test, where does the source of the message come from? When you have a teacher, where does the source of their message come from? Is it a different message? Is it a different message? You want to be careful. What are they teaching? A different position. What kind of position does their message leave you in? Does it leave you in hope and knowing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Or does it leave you more hope in them? And then a different character. What kind of people does the message produce? And then a different appeal. Why should you listen to their message instead of, Jesus, instead of the message from Jesus? A true teacher, it says here, a true teacher appeals to Scripture. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. That's First Peter 1.19. God has spoken, and the true teacher appeals to his word. The false teacher makes a rather different appeal by appealing to the lustful desires of, hum, of sinful human nature. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. So the true teacher asks, what has God said in his word? Always take it back to scripture. Pastor Bill says that over and over. The false teacher asks, what do you people want to hear? What will appeal to the flesh? You know. Is it, what kind of fruit are you producing? What result does the message have in people's lives? A different end. What does the message ultimately lead you to do? So be on your guard. You have leaders in the church here, Pastor Bill, the elders. If you're not sure, ask. Ask. And then compare what someone is telling you back to Scripture. If it doesn't match up, there may be a problem there. You see it on... in. Pastor Bill kind of, I think it was last week, was he doing the prosperity gospel preacher? He's talking about, give me your thousand dollars. I'll pray over it and it'll, ten times it'll be returned. You know, God's not a genie. And that's, that's not the way we should be looking at God. I think, of, um, I think of my dad, and I always think my dad was a very rich man when he passed away. 
they lived in a very rural community in Mississippi when he retired from Ford Motor Company. Uh, but he just had he just had this sense about him. He could drive by somebody's house and tell that there was something not right. And he'd pull off in the driveway, go knock on the door to see, make sure everything was okay. And probably nine times out of 10, he was right. So we're talking about a small community and and he used to do these things. And I always said, you know, that to me is just a great example of someone living out their faith. Now you're talking about a small community at his funeral. There were over three, <clears throat> 300 people there. I mean, to me, that's amazing. That is being rich. And I think that is more important than all the money in the bank. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were phony. They were external. They were legalistic. They were ritualistic. And they relied on tradition more than they relied on Scripture. In fact, uh, they even added to the law, the things that you needed to do. And, I, and it even happens today. Pastor Bill alluded to it as he was going through First John, some of the things that get added. Uh, today, if you're, really, uh, if you're really a devout Jew, you, you'll do things like you roll off the toilet paper before uh, 6 o'clock p.m. on Friday because if you actually pull it off the roll after 6 p.m., it's considered work and you can't work on the Sabbath. You can only drive so far on the Sabbath. There's just things like this that are done that uh, really have no basis in the law whatsoever. And we just, we need to guard against that. We need to guard against that even in the church today. Is tradition more important than scripture? You have to ask yourself that. And I gave a few examples of that. There's there's others that... um, I know we've seen where church can get started till the candles got lit. It was more important to light the candles than anything else. Uh, had a pastor from Lemon Grove share a story with me one time as he was, he was speaking. And the whole time he was speaking, periodically this lady would pipe up and she'd say, Turn on Jesus! And he thought, man, he says, I'm doing a really good job preaching here. You know, they're just really getting into it. And it just, turn on Jesus. Well, after his message was over, she came over to him and she says, you know, we can't start church till you turn the light on over Jesus. (laughs) That was more important to her than hearing what he had to say. And we need to guard against that. We need to guard against that. And then I read this quote to you from a politician that's running for president. I won't tell you their name. Now, now if what we do is based in scripture, then we should not have the attitude of a politician who recently stated, laws have to be backed up with resources and political will, she explained. And deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. I don't know about you, but... God doesn't change. James 1.17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You know, and that's something that we can definitely, definitely rest in. So, verse 12, be, Beware of false teachers 
Know the scripture and how to identify. That's why Pastor Bill always talks about, you know, you need to study. You need to be in a Bible study group. Understand what scripture has to say. And when you hear something that doesn't conform to what scripture says, you can identify the false teacher and confront that person. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. You know, Calvary Chapel teaches verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, pretty much. And you go to a Calvary Chapel, no matter where it is, that's pretty much the way they're teaching. Um, And you're bound to hit everything that needs to be hit eventually. Instead of jumping around and having top, doesn't hurt to have topical sermons once in a while to talk about specific issues. But the most part, when you teach through scripture, you are going to hit everything that needs to be hit at the time it needs to be hit. So then we pick up in Matthew 16, verses 13 and 14. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the, who do the people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So, John the Baptist, maybe he's come back by some miraculous power. By this time, he's, he's been beheaded. Elijah, uh, see, I will send you the prophet, this is Malachi 4, 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So, some thought he might be Elijah. Jews at Passover celebrations would put an empty chair reserved at the table for Elijah in the hopes that one day he was coming to announce the Messiah's arrival. And some thought maybe it was Jeremiah. Um, And I read a little bit of history on this. I think it was from Maccabees. But some Jews believe that before the Messiah returns... To establish his kingdom, Jeremiah would return to earth and restore the ark and the altar to their proper places in the temple. I think I shared this in Bible study a week or so ago. Um, But they actually thought that before the destruction of the temple and that, that Jeremiah had taken the ark and and the the altar and stored it somewhere up in the mountains. Uh, And so they thought. And then others thought, "Ah, he's just a prophet. Not sure which one, but he's just a prophet. So what about today? We touched a little bit on this. I was rushing through this the last time I spoke, so that's why I'm kind of going back over some of this. Who do people say Jesus is today? We're going to go back a little bit in history. It said Napoleon said he was no mere man, but did not acknowledge him as Christ. Uh, Strauss was a German naturalist. He was the highest model of religion. Robert Owens was a utopian socialist, and he called them... An irreproachable one. This one I like. Mikhail Gorbachev. Referred to him as the first socialist. John Lennon. Statement was. and Most of you know who John Lennon was. Yes. He says. We're more popular than Jesus. Oprah. And I, I saw this on a YouTube clip. So. There has to be more than one way. So those of you that like Oprah, I'm sorry. 
Rob Bell uh, used to pastor a church in Michigan, pretty good-sized church. It was um, uh, for quite some time, but he stepped down uh, because of some of his teaching. Uh, and this is one of the things that he recently said on the Oprah. I got it off of YouTube, but he has his own program now on the Oprah channel or, or whatever that is. And he says, how can you rely on 2,000-year-old letters to dead people? And this is a man who's to fill the pulpit. This was my favorite, though, Lisa on a blog. I love reading blogs sometimes. I mean, normally I'm looking to see what they say about the company I work for, but I was looking and I ran across this one. This was um, Lisa on a blog. I think Jesus might have been a good person in his time. Today, he is the monument to the stupidity of Christianity, just like Allah is to the rest of the so-called gods. Our current president said, I am so rooted in Christian tradition, I believe that there are many paths to the same place. <laughs> now, I'm not here to start. Um, but I compared that in, in conjunction uh, with, with um, Ronald Reagan, who uh, in the clip that I saw, he quoted John 3.16 and said, this is what we need. He also stated all the answers are between the covers of this book. And he held this up. Just read and believe. So be careful. That's a a warning. Be careful who you listen to. Who you you get your teaching from. A lot of pastors on TV today. Just if you have somebody that you hear and you really like, Google them. Find out more about them. Um... And see, ask Pastor Bill, you know, ask him, hey, have you heard about this, this guy? But then Jesus turns it around in, in verse 16 and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And we're all going to need to answer that question. We should answer it today and we all will need to answer it. And Peter being Peter was quick to respond. I mean, he's, you know... Sometimes I think there's a little bit of Peter in all of us. Sometimes in the way we respond to things. But in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's being interpreted Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. So Peter declared, You are the Messiah. The multitudes thought he was kind of a precursor. That he was coming, he was kind of like John the Baptist. He was coming because they were looking for a conquering Messiah. They weren't looking for someone like Jesus. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. But you know, even today, sometimes doubt may kind of trickle in. The things that, you know, matter what happens to us, we kind of get into this mode sometimes of woe is me. But you know, even John the Baptist had a moment in prison in Matthew 11. It says, when John had heard in prison that Christ, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And John the Baptist, I mean, he had baptized Jesus. Uh, he had heard of the miracles. But, you know, I think even today sometimes we have doubt that creeps in. And we just need to kind of get on our knees and just lift that up and ask God, you know, to really take that doubt away. Because it's going to happen. 
And I was, I was raised in church where we sang a lot of hymns. And this was actually uh, one of my favorite ones. But it says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, oh what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And so when we have those moments that, that we have that doubt, Take it to God in prayer. Lift it up to him. Get on your knees and just lay it all out to him. You can talk to him like you can talk to your friends or your family members. I mean, literally, there is no special way to talk to God other than just to lift up and open yourself up and just let him know what's on your mind. So Jesus responds in Matthew 16, 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. So God opened his eyes to who Jesus really was. And that's what God will do to us. You know, when we turn ourselves over and we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he will say, welcome. He will open our eyes to who Jesus is. His eyes were open to God unto who Jesus was. And in 1 John 4, 14 through 15, it says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And we all know John three sixteen, For God so loved the world... And you can, you can say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God, <clears throat> for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. These are the verses afterwards. But to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he is not believed in the name of god's one and only son and we need to keep that in mind you know we don't condemn anyone god really does not condemn anyone we condemn ourselves when we refuse to acknowledge who jesus christ is and then we go into matthew sixteen eighteen through 20 and i tell you that And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And so we quickly look, and we look at Peter, and the Greek word there is petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, meaning a small stone. And then we look at um, Petra, which is P-E-T-R-A. And how many people remember the band Petra back in the day? So, but that means a foundation stone. And we talked a little bit about this last time. The foundation stone or the cornerstone. And we see that, you know, back then they, they used the foundation stone or the cornerstone to set everything properly. And I always like, if you walk into my house in the foyer... Uh, when you walk in, the one wall goes like this. <laughs> it's a tract home, so what can I say? The only way to fix it would be tear the drywall off. So, 
Um, that definitely wall was not put on a foundation stone. But it's, you know, it also is to fix firmly. It's to fix firmly. And that's what we're to be. We're to be fixed firmly to Jesus Christ. Because in that verse, it's not saying that they're going to build the church on Peter. It's saying, I will build thy church. The church is built on Jesus Christ. And the statement that we read, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, for in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's the stone that the church was planted on, was Jesus Christ. Jesus says, my church. It's the first time that this word is used in the New Testament. Uh, We've not seen the church yet. We will see the church in Acts. But he's making a reference. Basically, what the word that was used for my church is called out ones. And that's what we are. It was stated uh, by a pastor I heard. said, it is not faithful believers who builds Christ's church but Christ who builds his church through faithful believers. So we're to carry the good news. God has entrusted us with carrying his message and sharing it with others. Whether it's here, whether it's at work, whether it's on the playground, no matter where it is, when that opportunity opens itself up, we should be sharing the good news that we have. And that good news is Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. That to me... Sometimes we get all wrapped up in um, evangelism programs or, you know, witnessing programs and all this stuff. But you know what? To me, the best one is telling your story. Just telling your story. When that door opens, somebody will say, you know, tell me more. You can share your story. You've lived that. That's you. That's, you can share what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And that will open the door to share more with other, you know, with other people. And normally that's going to be done one-on-one. It's normally going to be done on one. We never know what's going to come about when we step out and do that. Um, I know the, the men that um, they went to Cambodia. They had no idea what they were going to be walking into, what they were going to do. And I still don't know if I can handle what they ate. Just the, thinking about all the flies. I, mean, I don't know, guys. That would, that, that, was pretty, that would be pretty tough for me. That would be pretty tough for me. But uh, you just never know what you're going to be walking into. And so, but take those opportunities. I really encourage you to take those opportunities. Don't shy away from them. Because in Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, or Lakeside, in Judea, San Diego County, Samaria, California, or to the ends of the earth. Take it to whoever will listen. Paul witnessed to everybody he could, but not everybody accepted his message. Then it goes on and says the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And that's better, can be 
stated is death. Death cannot overcome it because Christ has conquered death on the cross. We know, we've, we've read the book, it says three days later, he rose again. He was not defeated. And then we can rejoice that, that we know that death has no power over him. But then it says the keys of the kingdom. This is a sign of authority, like stewardship. You know, you hear that, and I think Pastor Bill alluded to this last week. You hear about stewardship programs. It always revolves around the money. Um, but stewardship, you've been given, one of the things that you're a stewardship of is the message, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We don't save anybody, but we do have a responsibility to share that message with others. And so you've been given the keys to, to do that. You're a steward, and you should, you should take that seriously. It was back then, it was, you know, whether it was, uh, it was a trusted person that was in the house, they were given keys to the house and everything that, that they were to, to, to be the master's possessions. And so we've been given those keys, but we need, how are we going to handle that? Verse 19, again, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And basically, that's forbidding or permitting. Um, I want to go to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18 real quick. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Basically what it's saying is, you know, as long as you follow God's words, there are certain things that you you can do and cannot do. And one of those is if someone comes up to you and they reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, say an atheist or something, and they just won't listen to you, can you honestly say that that person has condemned themselves to hell? Just on the other side, if someone comes up and they profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you see the fruits of their labor and the things that they do, can you assuredly say, yes, that person will spend eternity in heaven? So as long as you are following scripture and you're doing it, because it basically is in line with what God's word says. There are things that, that you can say or do. And I use the scripture that kind of pertains to discipline about that. That sometimes becomes an issue in church. That churches shy away from church discipline because they're afraid of lawsuits or things like that. But if God's word, if you have someone in the church that is pulling people away, say a false teacher, you need to go to that person and confront them. And if they won't change, then you take two or three and you confront them. And if they will not, then you take it before the church. And if they still will not change, then you ask them to leave. You have that prerogative because they are not to pollute God's word. They are not to drag Christians away from the, the, the true word and the true Savior. 
So for two and a half years, he's been doing miracles, signs. Many people have not believed. And again, they were expecting a Messiah as a conquering king and a kingdom here on earth. And that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were looking for. They were looking for a kingdom here on earth, someone to overthrow the Roman government and get rid of them so that they would sit in the seat of power with whoever the king would be. Matthew sixteen twenty one. So from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. That he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. So he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things, which we know. He's going to be killed or better interpreted murdered because there was no reason to do what they did. And he would be raised on the third day. And then we read in chapter 22 or verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. So here, just a few verses before, we had him proclaiming that he's the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now we have Peter saying, never, you can't, this can't happen to you. This, you know, Peter was thinking carnally. He was thinking more of himself than he was of God, what God had planned in this situation. And I think we do that ourselves. I know I do sometimes. I, you know, it's like, I think if I take control of this, I can handle it much better than God can. Instead of stepping out there and allowing God to lead me, I want to do the leading and just bring God along in case I get in trouble. So, so Peter, so so like I said, just moments before he declared, you know, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, it's like, how can this be that you're going to die and not sure if they did and we're not sure if they didn't hear that last part about, hey, I'm going to be raised on the third day. Uh, but we do know that Peter changed his mind. Now, we even saw later in the crucifixion, how many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. And that's what I say. Sometimes I think there's a little bit of Peter in all of us. Uh, have I always taken every opportunity I could to share Christ with people that opened the door for me? No. Uh, I think I've gotten better. But there's still times that I kind of shy back. Um, and I pray that, you know, God can help me, but Peter does, Peter does change. And we see that in Acts. Acts chapter two. Verses 22 and 23. Now this is, this is Peter. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And then Acts 24, 2.24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him in the ground. So Peter changed. Peter got more bold. Peter got very bold, as we saw as you go through Acts. But doubt does creep in. We talked about John the Baptist a little bit, of, you know, that it, 
that it does creep in. Because here John the Baptist had declared, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is who the prophet spoke of. Voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. But then we see when John was in prison, he sent his followers out to say, are you the one or should we look for someone else? Verse 23 again. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And we saw this earlier. Jesus in in Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But it's not the first time we saw Peter. I mean, know about peter walking on the water and what happened when he took his eyes off jesus began to sink and i think that happens to us when we take our eyes off jesus and take it off long enough under the what's the i don't know if it's just a baptist saying but backsliding you know you take your eyes off jesus long enough you kind of you know and and satan is patient and he's you know he's very patient it's just you know you do this it's like oh well that's not so bad so you take one more step and say oh that's not so bad and before you know it you're way over here and jesus is nowhere in sight and so we need to keep our eyes on jesus so we don't sink Matthew 16:24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, "If anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it." So here again, they even they were thinking about, you know, a Messiah, a conquering Messiah coming back. But here Jesus is saying, you're going to have to take up my cross. He's talking about, I have to suffer many things. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised. And, you know, this would be in, this would be in their minds as to what was going on. I, was, I looked this up on what was going on back in those times. It said, this would be something people of Jesus' day would know about. Jesus in the area, or just in the area of Caesarea Philippi, a hundred men had been crucified. There had been over 800 Jewish rebels crucified in Jerusalem. And it's believed that after the death of Herod the Great, 2,000 Jews were crucified by the Romans. It is reported that over 30,000 crucifixions took place under Roman authority in Christ's lifetime. So when he said, take up your cross, that probably kind of really hit them as to what am I getting into? So a disciple of Christ must be willing to take up the cross, in, um, which, you know, could mean death. And I thought, wow, what am I signing up for? Now, I know we pass clipboards around to go to Mexico. If I pass around a clipboard and take up your cross and it might end up in death, you know. So it's something to think about. Are you willing to take up your cross or take up the cross and follow Christ to death? Doesn't mean necessarily we're going to end up there, but it's possible. 
Matthew 25 and 26, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good it is, is it if, a, <clears throat> if for a man, if he can, gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Is there anything on this earth that's more valuable than spending eternity with Jesus Christ? You remember the rich man that says, what did Jesus tell him to do? And he asked, what must I do to have eternal life? He says, go sell everything. Come and follow me. What would you do? You know, what about, what are you willing to give up? Time, house, land, promotion, status, fame. I read a, I read a, short, read a short story. It's talking about a master and a slave. And every day the master would go out to the field and the slaves working in the, in the um, mud and all of this stuff. And he's just singing at the top of his lungs. And the master says, what do I have to do to have this joy that you have? He says, go home, put on your Sunday best and come down here and help me in the fields. And the guy says, I can't do that. So he does this three times. Finally, on the third time, the guy gets dressed in his Sunday best and he comes out and the guy looks at him and he says, you don't have to, you just had to be willing to. So that's us. We just have to be willing to do it. Verses 27, 28. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before the Son of, see the Son of Man coming in his, his kingdom, or that can also be translated kingly or royal splendor. So there's going to come a time. We're going to end up in one place or the other. And... When we end up with Jesus, it says there will be a reward. We don't, under, we don't earn our salvation through works. We know that. But in James, it tells us that people will see our faith by our works. And I think today that's some of what people need to see Jesus in us more. Um, through the things that we do, reaching out. And I think many here are doing that. I mean, just going to Mexico, going to Cambodia... You know, just the things that we do to reach out and show the love of God. Verse 28 says, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or again, royal or kingly splendor. But we can't stop there. We can't stop there. We have to read the next three verses. Because people, they go, you know, he tells them that some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingly splendor. Well, the, the disciples are long dead. So we have to read on real quickly in verses Matthew 17, 1 through 3. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So they did see Jesus in his royal splendor or his kingly splendor. That's a bad place for, for a chapter break. It's really a bad place for, you know, you either take that verse and move it down one or you take those verses and move it up. Um, so just to kind of quickly recap, don't get trapped in traditions, rituals. 
that may replace God's word as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I always say there's seven deadly words that we should always remember. We have always done it that way. Could there be a better way? Or is it something that conflicts with Scripture that we need to... Just because we've always done it that way, if we find out it conflicts with Scripture, should we change it? I think so. Look out for false teachers in the church. Do not even toy. And I, I've got this underlined. Do not even toy with the idea that they may have some good things to say. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Trust in the good news and the return of Jesus and all his glory. You know, God... God wants to use us. All we have to do is step out there and do it. And he will use us. And I have just this last little story to tell you. But it was a cousin of mine. his second cousin. He, um, five years old, was diagnosed with cancer. He spent two years every Monday going to St. Jude for treatment. And uh, got to know the doctors and, you know, got to know the nurses. Even got to meet Carrie Underwood. Uh, you see the picture. He got this big smile on his face. Uh, but after two years, um, he was given a clean bill of health. And uh, I don't know if any of you know what Caring Bridge is. You, you can, like for someone who's terminally ill or someone who's going through something like this, you can create a website. And it's like you can keep a diary and people can log in and stay up to date. Because it's very hard, you know, you have all these people want to know what's going on, but you don't have time to, you know, because you're, you know, driving to St. Jude every, every Monday and all these things. And um, Rebecca shared a story on there that after he'd been given the good news about, you know, he was, he was all clear and everything she was reading to him and he looked up and said said he was laying there and she was reading to him and he looked up at her and he said you know mom i guess god must really have something special for me to do because he's going to let me stay here a little while longer is that a great testimony or what from a seven-year-old he's seven years old by now now he's now he's in high school is that a great testimony or what? And that's why I like, and I read this the last time, I like Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity i have that underlined in my bible every opportunity let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone so do you have that question in your mind who do you say that i am how will you answer my prayer is that you say you are the christ the son of the living god and if you say that then you can live with eternity for him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning and we just truly thank you for your word that we have something that we can rest on to know that when we are not sure what is true and and what isn't, that we can turn to your word 
that we can pray and we can seek guidance to you thanks to the Holy Spirit that will just help us to understand what we read. Father, we just thank you this morning for um, what you would have us to, to hear. But Father, help us to understand that we want to take this and share with others the good news. Father, we just pray you be with Pastor Bill and Patty, that they have a time of rest and a good time. And we just pray that you be with us as we go through this week. And we thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.